Well, as we begin this morning, um, I'm kind of continuing our series in core values, except that for the next few Sundays, I'm going to be specifically talking about one area of some of our values, and that has to do with biblical stewardship. Now, I want to say a couple things preliminarily about the message on stewardship, because it's kind of unique for me. In nearly 40 years of pastoral ministry, I have never preached a series of sermons on biblical stewardship. One of the reasons I've never done that is because every time in church we hear the word stewardship, we automatically think money. And every time we think money, everybody in the world and a lot of people in the church say, the only thing they ever talk about is money. You can talk about it once a year, and people remember that the only thing we ever talk about is money. So, I just avoided it uh, for for that reason. Uh, you know, because I feel like it's just one of those reactive kind of things. Uh, another reason that um, I've avoided the subject is because it's very intensely personal. Um, what you give is between you and God. And it's a personal kind of thing that you and God work out. And I feel very strongly about that. There are no rules or requirements saying that I cannot look at the offerings or look at the financial sheets, but I will tell you, neither here nor in any other ministry I've ever been involved in, have I exposed myself to your giving. I do not want to know what you give. That is between you and God. Uh, And for that reason, um, unless you tell me I have no idea what any of you in this congregation may give to the support of the work of ministry. I I feel that that's just something that you and God need to sort out. Uh, Other pastors feel differently. Some pastors want to look every week and see who's giving what, and some of them view that as a matter of their stewardship to encourage uh, tithing among all the membership. And uh, some people do that because they want to know who to butter up and... (laughs) who they can successfully ignore, but I have never wanted to do that because I feel like, uh, as Jesus said, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Now, obviously, he was speaking figuratively because how can you give if your left hand doesn't know what your right is doing? But the point he was making was it's a very private, a very secret, a very personal thing that you and God must uh, take care of amongst yourselves, between the two of you. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I haven't spoken about it. So... This is going to be new for us from the standpoint that I've never really uh, spoken about this, not even in a major way in a specific sermon, but I'm actually going to spend several Sundays talking about this subject of biblical stewardship. I've never done that before, so you're in for something new. Uh, The other thing is, this is going to be unlike anything you've ever heard from me before, because... God has started speaking to me in ways that I've never heard from Him before. And for that reason, uh, I know it's new because some of what I'm going to be sharing even this morning is new to me. It's something that as I began to prepare, thinking I was moving in one direction, God began to talk to my heart about moving in another direction. And and I just want to give you a, a, a prelude of that by way of a personal testimony. Um, one of the kind of watchwords or catchwords of 
uh, many uh, young people and children today is, I'm bored. And I just want to tell you that I've never been bored in my entire life, at least not that I remember. Um, I have always got something I want to do. I, I, I want to do something all the time. In fact, the only lament that I ever have is that I don't have enough time to do everything that I want to do. Um, I, I've always got a project. I've always got plans. I've usually got multiples. If I don't have that going, I've got books to read. I've got things I want. I've always got something I want to do. I'm just never bored. There's like five or six choices. Anytime there's a lull in my schedule, there's like five or six things I can do or more, you know, that I want to do. And so kind of my view of rest when I was quite a bit younger, my view of rest was uh, it, it was an intrusion into the things I wanted to do. I got to stop and rest. I don't want to do that. Uh, and that was uh, kind of viewed that way in my much younger days. Then uh, in the last several decades, uh, my view of rest has been, well, Rest is that thing I have to do so I can get more work done. After all, you're not very productive when you're tired all the time, and so you need to rest uh, so that you can be productive. And that, then my goal still was the idea that rest was a component of productivity and that I would rest out of necessity to, to budget kind of energy for myself so that I could be refreshed, so that I could do more stuff. And when I started preparing this message for this week and for this series and began to look at it, uh, I was reading some material that opened my eyes to a whole new thing. That maybe rest was not an intrusion or a necessary ingredient for productivity, but maybe rest was actually the goal. Maybe work was the intrusion into a life of rest, and that God's intent was that we have a very different perspective about the economy of our lives. And so, as I started studying for that this morning, I'm not going to talk to you about giving at all. I'm going to talk about getting what God has given us. And I'm going to talk about His economy and His plan, because biblical stewardship has its roots in God's economy. And an economy is the way you, you look at your values and priorities. An economy is the way you spend your time. People would say it's the way you spend your money, but friends, your money is your time. You, you trade time for money everywhere on the planet, uh, whatever it is, whether it's cash or whether it's corn or whether it's cowie shells in Indonesia, you trade your time for those things, and an economy has to do with the way you spend your time and how you invest your energy. And in God's economy, God had some things in mind for us that because of the fall, because of the sin of Adam and Eve that took the whole race off track, we have a warped perspective of what the economy of God is really all about. And in order to understand stewardship from a biblical viewpoint, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, we have to go to Genesis, to the creation. Does that surprise you? You heard a whole series of sermons not too long ago on the fact that everything is rooted in Genesis. And, and so is this. It all goes back 
to Genesis. And in the Old Testament, and particularly if you had been raised in a Jewish home, you would know this already, but you go all the way back to the Old Testament, and the sense of of stewardship is rooted in the idea that everything belongs to God. It's all His. We own nothing. We think we do, but... The scripture says that a person's life does not consist of the abundance of things and that a fool has said in his heart, I'm going to amass my riches and treasures and then I'm going to do whatever I please. Because the reality is God owns it all. It belongs to him. And we are merely uh, those who use it or manage it or enjoy it for a while. But, But it all ultimately goes back to God. If you want to look in your Bibles, there's a couple of things that I'd like to uh, have you look at. Look at Psalm 24 for just a moment. Psalm 24, uh, verses 1 and 2. If you want to turn there, or you can read it in the side margin, however you choose to do that. But Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all that it contains. What does that include? Kind of everything, right? The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In other words, God even owns you. You are His. You belong to Him. We are His people. The sheep of His pasture. We belong to God. We don't belong to ourselves. He has founded the world upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And if you want to look at another passage of Scripture in Psalm 50, um, turn over to Psalm 50, just a few pages over, beginning in verse 10. This is kind of a fascinating passage, because in Psalm 50, verse 10, God says this, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. Now just think about the the knowledge of God right now for a moment, what he's saying. He knows every bird in the mountains. And everything that moves in the field. And it's his. Belongs to him. Jesus said that not a sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge of it. Without his awareness. That's amazing. That God not only keeps track of you and me, but but He knows the birds. And He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. In other words, God is saying regarding our offerings. He says, when you bring your offering, He says, I don't need the, the, the sacrifices. In the Old Testament, they would bring animals to sacrifice, or they would bring the produce of their crops. And God says, I don't need that. What I'm looking for is a heart of gratitude. I'm looking for something inside of you that says, Lord, you have blessed me and I'm sharing out of that gratitude. Because he said, if I were hungry, I would never ask you. I own everything. I don't need what you could give me. I've lent it to you. 
You need to understand who owns what here and get your perspective straight. So when we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we look at the end of chapter 1 there, we find that God says to Adam and Eve after he has created the whole world, and remember the creation account, he makes everything there is in the universe, he makes the whole world, he makes the whole earth, he makes all the animals, makes everything there is. The last thing he makes is Adam and Eve. And when he makes it, he says to them, I made this for you. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to rule over it. I want you to manage it. I want you to be good stewards of it. I put it in your care. Be fruitful. Multiply. Subdue the, the, the animals and the birds and the things that swim in the sea. Have dominion over it. This is all for you. But you don't own it. You're here to enjoy it. You're here to be blessed by it. I will care for you and you're going to be my managers. I'm putting this in your care. And remember that, I'm getting ahead of myself, but remember that they were created at the end of the sixth day. So their first day on this planet was day seven, which according to the scripture is the day that God rested from all of his labor and from all of his work. So the first thing that we need to recognize when we consider the whole subject of stewardship is that we are stewards, we are managers. Whether we realize it or not, we're managers of what God owns. It all belongs to Him. Even our next breath, according to the Scripture, comes from God. And then when we view the world from God's perspective, as Jesus uh, teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, is pointed out in other places. The world is simply our temporary dwelling place. It's not our home. When we come back to God through Jesus Christ and enter into that relationship of faith and we start righting the ship, so to speak. We get our lives back on track, beginning with salvation, redemption, and trusting Christ. And we begin to move back into God's kingdom the way we were supposed to be. One of the things that we come to realize, as the writer of Hebrews says, of all those people of faith in chapter 11, is that they were strangers and aliens in this world. Because this is not home. This is a temporary place. And the real home is where God is in eternity that's going to last forever. The new heavens and the new earth and the place that Jesus is preparing for us. Jesus explained it this way when he was talking to his disciples. My kingdom is not of this world. Said that to Pilate even. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not into the politics and economics of this world. That's not what I'm about. If I were, my, my servants, my disciples would have swords and they would be interested in winning territory and conquering lands. But I already own it all. And the physical, material world doesn't impress me. It's not what I'm about. 
And so John reminds us that when we are identified with Jesus Christ, like Him, we also are part of a kingdom that is not a part of this world. We are people who are living kind of out of time and out of space. We're like aliens. And if you ever feel that way every once in a while, it may be for good reason. Because the Scripture says the world is passing away and and all of its lust. All this stuff out there. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so Jesus gives us a perspective in in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And this is the perspective He gives. He says, do not be absorbed, focused on the things of the world like, what am I going to eat? And what am I going to wear? And we could add to it, you know, where am I going to live? And how am I going to pay rent? And And there's a very good reason for that. He says, your father knows you need this. Your father knows you need this. So that's important. To believe that God is aware of my needs. Jesus says, do not let that be your priority to to get these things. But you seek first. My kingdom and my righteousness. Seek the things that are important to God. And all these other things will be provided for you. Because my Father knows that you have these needs. Now, a lot of times people take exception with that. They they read that and they say, well, okay, wait a minute. I, I know what it says, but that's not, that's not the way it looks to me. I really have got to focus on this other stuff. And the only thing I can say there is, and, and, I, and I want to be very gentle with this as much as I can, but when we look at something Jesus says and say it doesn't work, we're saying, God, you're lying. I mean, that's the bottom line. God, you're a liar. And when you put it in those terms, it seems a little more harsh. But when we come to grips with reality, the real question is, okay, if this is not working for me, am I keeping my end of the bargain? Because what Jesus says in that passage as he preaches to the crowds gathered on the mountainside, put God first. Make Him the first one you think of when you wake up, the last one you think of when you go to bed, and live every hour in between with your heart toward Him. Be concerned about His goals. Be absorbed with His priorities. Be thinking about His interests. Live like a kingdom person who is focused on Jesus Christ. As Paul says to the Colossians, set your mind on things above where He is seated at the right hand of God. Make Him the priority. And then he says, my father knows that you need this other stuff. He will take care of it. He will provide it. That's his part of the bargain. That's his job. And so in the, kind of in the economy of the kingdom, we need to recognize that everything to begin with belongs to God. We are not owners. We are managers. 
And secondly, that it is required of stewards that they be faithful. That as managers, we are told to put the interest of the master first. And in doing that, that he would in turn take care of us. So that brings me to my second point. Biblical stewardship is rooted in the confidence or the faith that God knows our needs and will provide for us. You you cannot enjoy the blessings of the kingdom until you are confident that when you put God first, He is going to take care of you. That's kind of like where it all begins. And here's where I kind of ran up against the Bible this week and just got my eyes like totally open to something I had not realized before. And that's the whole concept of Sabbath. Now, I know I talked to you about Sabbath when I came back from my um, sabbatical time last November. But God is still talking to me about the meaning of this. And I think, Carrie, I believe it was you that said last week that Jesus has the amazing ability to take profound concepts and put them in simple sentences. And then you stop and you think about it like, whoa. When Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees came to him and said, what are you doing messing up the Sabbath? How come you're doing this work on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, after he gave an explanation, he said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath day was made for man. Now, that's a very simple sentence, which has profound depth. The Jewish viewpoint of the Sabbath was, this is the day that we have to make God number one. Well, every day God should have been number one. But this is the day, and and that means that we've got to keep all the rules. We've got to do everything right. And they worked hard at that. You've heard me talk about kind of some of the rules and stuff on the Sabbath, but you could only walk so many paces. Actually, the distance you were permitted to walk on the Sabbath was the distance from your doorstep to the synagogue and back home. That was it. You were permitted to do that. If you had to spit, you could spit on a rock, but you could not spit in the dirt. The reason you couldn't spit in the dirt is because the spit mixed with the sand made mud. Mud was a component of mortar. Mortar was used to lay bricks, and therefore you were contributing to something that could be used for work. But if you spit on a brick, then it would evaporate and nothing would come of it. So, you could spit on a rock or a pavement, but you couldn't spit in the dirt. And for them, Sabbath was something that was just all tied up with all these rules and all these requirements, all these regulations. When I was growing up, I didn't grow up a Jew. I grew up a Baptist in the South. But Sabbath, Sunday was our Sabbath, was a majorly important day. We couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, kids ought to love that, except you couldn't do any play either. 
You couldn't play ball. You couldn't make noise. You couldn't do a bunch of stuff in the backyard. You couldn't run and shout and holler. You couldn't play tag. You had to sit and read a book. It's the Sabbath. You know, and, and I can remember just being miserable as a child. Because I had all these things I wanted to do and I couldn't do them. And, and I came to realize a little later on that what was really the agenda was my parents wanted a nap. And they wanted me to be quiet. But it was all under the guise of, you know, this is, this is Sunday. And we don't do anything on Sunday, including... Uh, play and outdoor activities and stuff like that. And so I kind of grew up with that sort of background. And the Sabbath was a chore. And that's the way the Jews looked at it. And so when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, you know, they said, you're, you're working. What are you doing with this work? And Jesus said, the purpose of the Sabbath is to bless you. Not to frustrate you. And I have blessed this person. I have healed him. And frankly, if you had an ox in the ditch, you'd get him out. What more is it to bring healing to a whole person? And, and Jesus was making the point that the, the, the purpose of Sabbath was to bring blessing into our lives. To bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring rehabilitation. It was designed to make us better and whole, not to frustrate us. And he took the statement all the way back to Genesis, though he didn't say so. He did when he said the Sabbath was made for man. Because when you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, remember that the last thing God created was Adam and Eve at the end of the sixth day. And you've heard me say this before when I was preaching through Genesis. But in the Jewish calendar, in the Jewish day, according to the scriptures, the day begins with nightfall, sunset. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. Adam and Eve were made at the end of day six, nightfall came. They went to sleep. Can you imagine that? I mean, you're just created. The first thing you do is go to sleep. And then you wake up, and what day is it? It's the Sabbath day. You wake up in the rest of God. And what do you think they did that day? They spent time with God in the garden. The Sabbath was made for them. God didn't need to rest, but he stopped all of his activities so he could spend time with Adam and Eve. And so God instituted the principle. Remember the Sabbath to set it apart. That's what holy means. Keep it holy. Set apart the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Six days you can get your work done. But on the seventh day, I want you to rest. I want you to spend time with me. I want you to spend time with each other. I want you to enjoy one another. I want you to enjoy my fellowship. I just want you to chill. Don't do anything. And the reason God gave all those rules in the Old Testament was so that they would get it. They would understand what he mean by, meant by, don't work. 
Don't gather firewood. You know, don't cook a bunch of meals. Don't do this stuff. Just chill. Just enjoy the day. So when he gave them manna in the wilderness, do you remember that? All of these scripture passages are here, and I realize the first hour, I don't have time to read them all, but you can go home and read them all. They're fascinating. And if you really want a fascinating read, you know that boring book of Leviticus? Go home and read Leviticus chapter 25. It will just knock your socks off. It is amazing what God has put in Leviticus 25. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the people in the wilderness with Moses, they've left Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining. Oh, they don't have anything to eat. And God says, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you food. I'm going to take care of you. And so the scripture says the next morning they woke up, and when the dew evaporated from the ground, there was this white flaky stuff everywhere. And God said, this is, this is my provision for you. Gather it up and make food out of it. And so they gathered it up and they uh, made uh, bread or whatever, however they put it together. And it tasted like um, cakes and honey. I mean, how good is that? And so God gave this statute. He said, six days, there's going to be manna. There's going to be this bread stuff. And you can go gather it up. Now he said, don't keep any of it. Because I'm going to give you more every day. There's a principle there. There's a principle. Give us today our daily bread. I will meet your needs today. Don't worry about tomorrow. That's got enough trouble of its own. Don't even go there yet. I will give you what you need Today, of course, you know, people being people, some of them tried to keep some. So the next morning they said, ah, we're ahead of the game. We got some manna left over. And they opened their container or whatever. And it was like, ugh, ugh, it's nauseating. It's sick. It turned foul. God said, I told you not to keep this stuff. It's only good for one day. Go get some more. Every day I'm going to give you manna. But when it comes to the sixth day... I'm going to give you enough for two days because I don't want you going out on day seven. Well, people being people, don't you know what they did? Day seven came, first seventh day. Some of them went out on the Sabbath day and tried to gather manna, and there wasn't any. And what they gathered on day six didn't spoil overnight. And God's laying a principle here. Six days you gather manna. Seven, you rest. I'm going to give you on day six what you need for day seven. I'm going to take care of you. He's trying to get them to understand his provision. So we come to the time when they're about ready to go into the land. And Leviticus 25 explains this in detail. And this is fascinating. God says when you go into the land of of Canaan, when you get there and you go into this promised land, he said... I want you to plant your crops for seven years, or six years. But on the seventh year, I don't want you to plant anything. I don't want you to till the soil. I don't want you to plant any crops. I don't want you to make any harvest. He said, I'm going to give you enough in the sixth year that you will have all the food you need for the seventh year, 
and you will have all the food you need for the eighth year while you're waiting on the next crop to grow. I'm going to give you enough food for three years in year six. Six, seven, and eight. So when you plant in the eighth year, you'll be started for the next six. And every seven years, I want you to let the land rest for a whole year. No planting, no tilling, no harvesting. Let the strangers in your midst get whatever they want out of your fields. Let, the, let your animals eat whatever they want. Because I'm going to give you enough in year six to last for the next two years. And then, he said, every 49 years, when you get to the 50th year, I want you to take the 50th year off. That's going to be the Jubilee year. Now, if you do the math right, you realize what's happening here. Seven times seven is 49. So you've got one year off every seven. Now you get 49. You take the 49th year off and you get the 50th year off. So you get two years off in the year of Jubilee. Don't do any work. And furthermore, because I own the land, not you. In the year of Jubilee... If your neighbor went broke and kind of sold out to you, you have to give you have to give his family back his property. It's not your property. All you're getting is the use of it until the year of jubilee. God actually says this in Leviticus 25. So when you make a deal, you do the math. If it's 40 years to the next year of jubilee, you're buying 40 years of use. If it's three years to the next year of Jubilee, you're only buying three years of use. So don't give him 40 years worth of money. Think about it. Because when the 50th year comes, you have to give everything back. Everybody starts over. All the debts are forgiven. All the slates are wiped clean. Everybody goes home and they start fresh. Isn't that an amazing system? I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's great. Now, here's what kind of hit me. God says, one day in seven, I want you to just stop and not do any work. One year in seven, I want you to take the whole year off. What are you going to do if you're not planting, harvesting, tilling the soil, or doing any work? You've got a year of vacation. A year of vacation. And it's paid. Because He gave them enough in six to last for seven. It's paid. One year paid vacation. And they don't have any real job to do. they got to just eat and brush their teeth, you know, and stuff. But they don't have any work to do for a whole year. And every 50 years, they get two years off. Did you know that the Israelites never kept the seventh year? And never kept the Jubilee in all of their history. There's no record of it ever being done. People being people, you know what happened? They got to that sixth year, and the harvest was like amazing. I mean, there was more beans than leaves on the plant. 
there were like nine ears of corn on every stalk. I, I mean, it was just an amazing year. And what do you think they did? Boy, look at this. This is the best year ever. Next year is going to be even better. Honey, another year or two, we can build that big house we've been wanting. They never took it off. They never recognized the provision of God. They never took the break. They just kept right on working. The writer of Chronicles says at the end of Chronicles, the year is 586 and the Israelites, the whole nation, is going into Babylonian captivity. And the chronicler says, so the people went into captivity and the land received the rest of all of its Sabbaths for 70 years. 500 years the land had never had rest. And God said, I'm giving the land a break. For 70 years it's going to lie vacant. Because my people never trusted me. My people never believed that I would provide for them. My people took advantage of every chance they had to make another buck. And they never stopped to rest. And I was going to give them a vacation for a whole year. That they could just spend with me and spend with their family and spend with their friends. I was going to give them a jubilee every 50 years and... Let everybody get a fresh start. And they never did it. They never trusted me. They never believed me for that. You know, friends, God has an economy. An economy, I think I said a little earlier, an economy is not based on money, it's based on time. It's based on how you use time. Because you're trading your time for money if you're earning it. And what God says about time is this. Relationships are more valuable than stuff. You need to spend time with me. You need to spend time with each other. You know, in the story of Mary and Martha, I can preach it, but unfortunately I recognize that in that story I'm Martha. I might have been sitting at Jesus' feet instead of in the kitchen, but I'd have probably been doing something on my iPhone while he was talking. I, I just do, do, do. And God says, be, be, be. Stop doing. Start being. I will take care of you. I made you to have fellowship with me. I want you to trust me. I made you to enjoy each other. What is it that's left when everything else is gone? Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope, they're gone. That's hope's realized. Faith is sight. Love remains. At the new heaven and the new earth, what do we have? We're together in the presence of God. 
God is interested in people. He's interested in relationship. He wants us to be able to enjoy Him and not to be so caught up in the things of this world that we're always trying to get our hands around more stuff. Jesus said, my kingdom isn't here. I want you to focus on me. I want you to put me first. And I'll take care of you. And when he says that, he makes me realize that the purpose of rest is not to work. The purpose of work is to rest. That there are jobs to do and there are things to do, but the goal is to have enough from God's provision that at the end of the day and the end of the week and the end of a period of time, I can just spend time with Him. I can spend time with you. I can spend time with my family. I can spend time with people that matter. And when I recognize that I am a manager of what God owns, that it isn't mine to begin with, then when I also give something back, it is a demonstration of my trust. God, I am giving this up out of love and gratitude because you have provided for me and you will provide for me and I'm able to release this without fear because you have everything and you told me that if I put you first you would take care of me. Now, some of us have gotten ourselves in positions where that's not easy to do because we have all kinds of obligations. And there's a lot of truth. Well, there's total truth in the Scripture, but sometimes we try to differentiate between investments and, and purchases that are depreciating. But the reality is the Scripture says that the borrower is always a slave to the lender. If you have debts and obligations and payments, they kind of drive you. Some things we can't avoid. I can't get the, the gas company to give me my gas on a daily basis. you know. So I get a bill for it. I have to pay at the end of every month. And there are those kind of things. But God knows all that. He knows where we are right now. But sometimes we struggle because we are trying to get our hands around more stuff than God intends us to be holding on to. And He wants us to get His values in place where we cherish relationships and we cherish Him more than we cherish the things. And the lion's portion of biblical stewardship begins when we recognize God's ownership, our management, and we adopt His values. When we put Him first, the other things begin to fall into place. Father, I pray this morning that You would help us to learn this lesson. I pray that You'd help me to learn this lesson. To understand 
kingdom values and make them a part of my life. As your word tells us, happy, blessed is the person that hears my words and puts them into practice. Father, give us an adjustment in our economics. Let us see true value the way you see it. And to reorient our lives according to your priorities. Begin the work today to bring us into conformity as managers with your goals. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.